Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Rachel Rubin from Intim Medicine Specialists in Washington, D.C., talking about female sexual medicine. Uh, I'm Dr. Rachel Rubin. I'm a urologist in Washington, D.C., uh, and my fellowship training is in sexual medicine, which means I take care of men and women, uh, all genders, actually, for all sexual problems. Um, I have a private practice in Washington, D.C. I work with the residents both at Georgetown uh, and at GW, and um, I'm going to just talk to you uh, tonight during this urology, sort of this virtual urology grand rounds. And so there may be some urologists listening, there may be some non-urologists listening, um, but let us know if you have questions. You can type in the chat box, you can go in the Q&A, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to all of you uh, today. You can follow us on uh, Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, These are my disclosures. Uh, And I'm going to start off by reminding everybody that we must never forget the severe consequences of sexual medicine. So uh, it's dangerous, especially during a pandemic. I know personally, I tried to send my children back to Jeff Bezos at Amazon, but he would not receive them. Uh, He told me they were non-refundable. So uh, keep that in mind. Sex is not just about pleasure, but but bad things like procreation certainly can happen. Um, We're going to talk today about female sexual function and dysfunction. Um, This is a textbook, actually, that uh, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, which is our multidisciplinary society. I'm the current education chair. Uh, We have courses. We have Um, annual meetings. We have a wonderful multidisciplinary group of people, and and there is a textbook uh, as well. Um, Why do I tell you this is important? Um, This is a group of urologists that we tend to talk to. So many of my colleagues like to say, hmm, female sexual medicine, this is not my problem. Well, unfortunately, uh, everybody likes to say it's not my problem, and uh, it's a little bit of all of our problems. And so nobody, the problem with female sexual medicine is nobody owns it. Nobody takes ownership of taking care of women's sexual health problems. And so nobody wants to do it. Uh, if you have, if you are a, a female or you know any females in your life, you can ask them if a gynecologist has ever asked them if they could have an orgasm, has ever asked them about sexual pleasure or sexual health. It doesn't happen routinely at the doctor's office. And so the question is, how are our patients learning about sexual health problems. Uh, I know personally, how did I learn about sexual health uh, issues? It was in middle school, right? This is actually how I learned sex ed. It was the middle school gym teacher, and I remember him talking about very little, uh, but that's it. That's the extent of sexual education that most of our patients get, and unfortunately, it's the extent of sexual education that most of our doctor colleagues Um, also get. And so at what point do we give patients good advice uh, or are able to answer many of their questions that they have? And our patients have questions. And unfortunately, they end up going to uh, people like Gwyneth Paltrow for their answers. And if you'd follow this, great. If if not, you know, these celebrities uh, sell a lot of snake oil on the internet and they tell you all these things that are not evidence-based and are not true. And it is billions of dollars worth of an industry um, because patients are, people are hungry for sexual health information and they're hungry to have um, more pleasure in their lives. 
Um, there is a lot of sexism out there. Obviously, it's 2020. We all know that uh, women uh, don't quite have equality. Uh, not only do we have a pay gap, but we actually have, a, you know, an orgasm gap in this country that male sexual health gets a lot more attention than female sexual health issues. This is an advertisement uh, in the New York City subway system. And anyone who's been there knows that the ads for erectile dysfunction are, are abundant. There's many ads for erectile dysfunction. And on the right there, that was an ad that was approved um, for the Hims company. And on the left was a proposed ad to the New York City subway system about a very tasteful vibrator uh, for women. And it was deemed not appropriate by the New York City subway system. And that created a lot of lawsuits uh, and a lot of anger in that we're okay with men's sexual health, but there is a, a disconnect when it comes to female sexual health. Well, Dr. Rubin, it's nice that you're a urologist and it's nice that you're doing this, but give me a break. This is what OBGYN should be doing. Um, and I'm sorry, but they're just not doing it. Um, they, they don't, a, the urologists are the ones who are actually taking ownership of women's sexual health, much like they take ownership of male sexual health. So for anyone who keeps uh, posted on these things, ACOG, which is the, um, um, the Gynecology Association, in 2018, they redesigned how we take care of women uh, after they have a baby, what was called fourth trimester guidelines. And in these guidelines, they basically came out and said, well, you know, uh, after you have a baby, you should maybe do some pelvic floor exercises for stress urinary incontinence and use some water-based lubricant for painful intercourse. That's as far as it goes. That's as much sexual health uh, teaching they give to gynecologists. And it's pretty upsetting because there's so much more that we can do for our patients. And now let's talk about the urologists. So uh, the American Urologic Association, has a wonderful core curriculum that has really expanded and changed since I was a urology trainee. Um, and, and as we all know, urologists are at the forefront of all the research on male sexual health. And so if you go to the urology core curriculum, or if you had gone to the urology core curriculum uh, about a year ago, um, and you go to their sexual medicine category, uh, there were uh, 11, 11 topics on male sexual health. And if you look down here, one, there was one topic on women's sexual health. And I was asked to edit this section. And I said, uh, no way, you gotta be kidding me. We've got 11 to one. Um, you gotta, you know, this is crazy. Even our pay gap is a little bit better than 11 to one. We've gotta do better than this. And unfortunately the urology pay gap is not much better than 11 to one. Uh, urology remains one of the uh, largest pay gaps uh, from women to men. And so we do have a lot of work to do uh, in the pay gap as well. But I said to the, the core curriculum committee, I said, if I'm gonna help edit this section, I need to hire a bunch of uh, uh, my colleagues to help me, as well as we need to expand it and have more than just one section, especially since we have so much that we can do. So I found, um, what is that? One, two, three, four of my female urology friends. And then we are sandwiched between Dr. Erwin Goldstein, who created the field of female sexual medicine, uh, many would argue, and his wife, Sue Goldstein, who is the upcoming president of, of our society, ISWISH, and really just dived into this core curriculum and have made Made some changes. So since this is a urology grand rounds, we're going to be talking about what some of those changes were in our core curriculum. And certainly anyone who is a urologist can log in and take a look at the new core curriculum. 
So we now have three sections. So that's good, three to 11. So we're getting somewhere in this world. And in we talk about nomenclature and anatomy. We talk about disorders of desire, arousal, and orgasm, and also the medical and surgical management of pelvic pain and dyspareunia or painful sex. So in talking about nomenclature, when we start, we talk about epidemiology. We talk about uh, how do you diagnose a sexual dysfunction in your female patients? How do you talk to women? You know, you're in a busy practice. How do you ask about these kinds of problems? What are validated questionnaires that we use in the doctor's office? And really important, how did, how, what is the anatomy that we're supposed to know here and how to do a physical exam? I certainly was not taught in medical school how to do a proper uh, vulvar exam. And I really do a, a, a I really try to tr teach trainees as much as possible um, that there's so much to learn from a proper physical exam. So we have a lot of overlap when we talk about female sexual problems. Uh, there's uh, issues of, of desire, so sexual desire disorders, sexual arousal disorders, much like erectile dysfunction, your ability to engorge, uh, lubricate what happens to the female erectile tissue. We have issues with orgasm disorders and of course pain disorders as well. And we know there's a lot of overlap with all of these issues. Anatomy, so again, as I said, no one really teaches us in medical school how to do a proper vulvar exam. But I spend a lot of my time as a urologist thinking about the homologous anatomy, what, you know, the male anatomy and the female anatomy, it all comes from the same place. And for my physicians on the, on the call, right, we all start here and you either develop a penis or you develop a vulva. It depends on what chromosomes, what hormones you have. And the homolog, the fact that the head of the clitoris is the same as the head of a penis. The shaft of the clitoris is the same as the shaft of the penis. The labia majora is the same as the scrotum. So so I spend a lot of time thinking, what do I know about the male penis? What are the pathologies that I know about the male penis or the male genitalia? And how do I um, look at the female genitalia? And is it the same pathology? And what do I know about each of them? And so my work, you know, in seeing uh, all genders is I can really like understand, you know, a lot of these different issues that come up. And so you have to also understand that the clitoris is a penis in every way. It is corpora cavernosa tissue. The clitoris has a large crura. Um, it goes all the way down to the ischial tuberosities, much like the penis, as all my urologists know. Um, and we have to really shout these pictures from the rooftops because so many women will come in and say, well, geez, Dr. Rubin, I can't have an orgasm with penetration. And you show them this picture and you say, anatomically, how, you know, 82% of, of uh, women do not orgasm with penetration because as you see here, the clitoris, their erectile tissue is nowhere near uh, the, the vaginal opening. And so teaching your patient's anatomy can actually help with their sexual function. I had a 69 year old woman in my office just last week who I showed her clitoris for the very first time. She had never seen it before. And so there's so much education that you can do um, just teaching your patients you know, their own anatomy. And it was actually urologists, a number of urologists who did some cadaver dissections and really um, uh, found that uh, a clitoral anatomy um, and updated it. Um, there has been a lot written on it recently, but um, these, this is corpora cavernosa tissue. It is spongy erectile tissue, uh, just the same uh, as the penis tissue. 
the clitoris has a large dorsal nerve, um, and it's important to really get a sense of if you're operating down here that you can affect uh, clitoral anatomy and pleasure. Uh, there are many uh, young women who are getting labiaplasties, and it can cause really irreversible uh, damage to their sensation and their pleasure mechanisms. And so we must, must be educating about anatomy to make sure those things don't happen. But cross-sections, this down here is, as we all know, a cross-section of a penis, and this here is a cross-section of a clitoris. So it's really incredible how the tissue is exactly the same. And as a urologist, we have a whole medical subspecialty focused on the male genitalia and not a doctor on earth routinely examines the clitoris or talks about the clitoris or even knows anything about the pathology of a clitoris. And so it's pretty um, distressing that, that the equality is, we're so far from that equality. But if you look at some of these very fascinating cadaver dissections, I mean, this is a, a cadaver anatomy of the entire shaft of the clitoris. So this is the glands, you know, the head, and this is the shaft. I mean, most of the clitoris is internal, but um, it, it is homologous exactly the same sort of as the penis. And when you talk about the vulva, the vulva is an incredibly hormonally sensitive tissue. We must, as urologists, get used to talking about um, uh, talking about uh, hormones in women and hormones for the bladder, the urethra, the vagina, and the vulva. So all of your women who patients who come in with recurrent urinary tract infections, if they're in, you know, uh, in menopausal, you have to start thinking hormone causes, um, especially those women where there's no culture positive, uh, uh, those women who are breastfeeding, those women who are on oral contraceptives. Um, the vulvar tissue is rich in both estrogen and androgen receptors. And so as urologists, we're quite comfortable talking about testosterone in uh, men. We must get more comfortable talking about testosterone in women. So if you look here at this woman's tissue right here at the opening, it's very red, raw, irritated. This is a woman who's on breast cancer treatments, um, you know, uh, that affect her hormone status. This would look the same if she were uh, breastfeeding or many women who come on birth control pills also have, you know, pain with intercourse, which is due to hormonal causes. And the tissue is urologic anatomy. So if you look at the inside of the labia minora, it is this tissue here that is endoderm or the same as the lining of the bladder, which is different than the skin, the labia out here, and it's different than the vagina, which is mesoderm on the inside. So embryologically, you have three different structures all which have different nerve endings, different hormones, and, and have different pathologies that can occur. So I want to briefly, hopefully this shows up um, with Zoom, but I want to briefly show how I do a physical exam. Because if you start examining women the same way every time, then you'll be able to find things and you'll be able to understand what is happening um, if something goes wrong. And when you, when you examine patients, you always want to think, okay, what what are we looking at right now? What is going on with the tissue? What is going on with the muscles underneath? What are the nerves that innervate uh, this tissue as well? So let's see if this shows up. So when I examine a woman, I palpate her labia majora, okay? And that's all pelvic floor muscle underneath. So if the patient says, ow, off to physical therapy, she goes. You palpate her tissue. You, you examine her labia majora and her labia minora. You see how her labia minora there is missing almost half of it. It's very small. I start to think hormonal issues. You touch the patient with a Q-tip. You retract her prepuce of her clitoris to see if she has phimosis. And then you examine her vestibule, this endodermal tissue. And if your patient says, ow, or says, that's my urgency, or that's my you know, symptoms, that's my pain with sex, 
then you start to understand, you know, that it's not all interstitial cystitis, it's not all bladder pain, it's not all, you know, um, uh, UTIs. And so then you examine the pelvic floor. And when I examine a pelvic floor, you put your finger in the vagina and you work your way like a clock palpating muscles. And if those muscles, if when you, when you do that, if the muscle feels tight, or the patient says, ow, right? If you feel a muscle, a tight, tight muscle, if it feels like a tight band, a tight muscle, or the patient says, ow, again, pelvic floor physical therapy. So when you put your finger in the vagina, you work around like a clock. You don't just feel for the urethra and the bladder like we were all taught uh, when we were uh, in urology uh, training. So what are things that you're gonna routinely find on a vulva exam? I promise you, if you start doing this tomorrow, you will find pathology. Those patients who have recurrent urinary tract infections, but the cultures are all negative, I guarantee you many of them will have what's called provoked vestibulodynia. So it doesn't always have to be this red. It can look totally normal. But if you touch them in this distribution, they will say, ouch, 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 Dr. Rubin, that's my UTI. You are touching my UTI. I'm certainly not giving you a urinary tract infection, but that tissue is red, raw, and irritated. You will also find clitoral phimosis. So you will be, see that the, the clitoris, the prepuce, does not retract. And if you, you know, the urologist on the call, you will know that that uh, uh, phimosis in men is a very common condition that we treat. And yet 25% of all women have clitoral phimosis, but no one um, talks about the clitoris. No one routinely examines the clitoris. And so how much pathology are we missing? Because it's not a, a part of the body that we routinely examine. And you will also find a lot of genitourinary syndrome of menopause. I joke, if I could buy a billboard, this is what would go on my billboard, because not a woman on earth would choose to have the vulva on the right. Not a woman on earth um, would choose to have, these women have pain with wiping, they can't have penetration, even if they want it, uh, they have pain with sitting, they have constipation. Um, this tissue is so hormonally sensitive and we must get comfortable prescribing uh, medications for genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. So that gets to our sort of section one. If you go to the urology core curriculum and you look at section two, um, then we start to talk a little bit about uh, disorders of desire, arousal, and orgasm. And so I'm not gonna talk about everything that's in the core curriculum, but I do wanna touch on a very common issue that we all see, which is called hypoactive sexual desire disorder or HSDD. Listen, we deal with libido in our male patients all the time, but rarely do we ever talk to women about their um, libido issues. There's obviously some controversy where some people think, oh, women don't have innate libidos. Women are not sexual, which I guarantee you my clinical practice does not agree with that. But women have, so many women have innate desire where um, they report having high, high libidos on their own and they think their own thoughts and fantasies and they enjoy sex. And many women have responsive desire where maybe they're not interested in sex, but their partner initiates and then they can get involved and, and be really interested. So just like our male patients, Patients. Some have high libido, some have low libidos, and everything in between, uh, same as with uh, our female patients or any gendered patients, really. And um, it turns out that about 40% of women complain of having low desire, but only 10% are bothered by it. And it's really only a medical problem if the patient is bothered by it. So if you have a patient who says, oh yes, my libido is terrible, but who cares? I have no interest in that. I, my partner has no interest in that. I'm more worried about my urinary urgency. Then of course the urinary urgency takes precedent. But if you have a patient who is bothered by their distressing low libido, then there are things we can do to help that patient.
your patients don't talk about this, mostly because they think you don't want to hear about their sexual health concerns. And it turns out you don't. You really, the data shows that doctors don't want to talk about your sexual health concerns because no one ever taught you in medical school how to address those sexual health concerns. So patients really don't feel like physicians care about these issues or even take time to talk to them about these issues. But much like depression is a brain chemistry problem, it turns out low desire is, is similar. And so these are um, uh, an example of a healthy patients uh, with no sexual problems on the left here and patients who report a hypoactive sexual desire disorder and you show them an erotic video and you throw them in a PET scanner and basically uh, the patients who have the women who have no sexual complaints their brains light up in a, such a certain way and those who have low desire their brains don't light up in a very similar way and so we know therapy works for depression we also know antidepressants work for depression we know that uh, antidepressants and therapy work synergistically even better. And so um, many, we believe that the same is probably true for low desire in women, in that if you can, you know, help with this underlying brain chemistry and boost dopamine in people's brains, you can potentially um, allow for improvements in libido. And ISWISH, the society I was telling you about, uh, we have a lovely process of care document that really it's open access uh, in the Mayo Clinic uh, proceedings, and it will give you a step-by-step -step guide of how to take care of patients uh, who complain of low desire. And um, this is just a diagram of the flow chart that they have you, um, you know, uh, what are the different treatments? And it's really a multidisciplinary biopsychosocial approach, right? Education, uh, therapy, uh, hormones. So for postmenopausal uh, women, we know testosterone works great to increase libido. And we have FDA approved medications, phlebanserin and, and, and bremelanotype that work to boost dopamine in the brain and are statistically significantly shown to improve libido and decrease distress. And so uh, it basically is this flow diagram that shows all of these different ways. We uh, lower the, um, the activation, the part of your brain that's always making lists and, and too busy to think about sex and boosting the dopamine uh, middle part of your brain that is more interested in, in sexual uh, function. So hormone therapy, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the last year or so about testosterone in postmenopausal women. And actually, the story is not much different in my female patients than in my male patients. It does work with libido a little bit. It's not the you know, fountain of youth. It's not the answer to everyone's problems. But testosterone can absolutely be done safely and effectively uh, in a female patients. There was, this is another open access paper that I strongly recommend everyone uh, look at. It was the global consensus position statement for the use of testosterone therapy in women. And this was a really nice document that went over all the data for testosterone use in women. And their key findings were really that we have good data in postmenopausal women who have hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It's safe, it's effective. And um, the problem is we have no FDA approved version for women. Uh, it's more of a political and money story than it is a safety or efficacy story, unfortunately. We can uh, talk about that at another time. Um, but how do I do it? I use male testosterone. 
testosterone. And I know that my female patients need about one tenth the dose of my male patients. And so if I want to use generic testosterone gel, and as we know, our male patients would take a whole tube every day and rub it on his chest. My female patients make this tube last 10 days and uh, using good RX cash price, you're talking, you know, $14 a month uh, for this type of treatment. So it's not an expensive treatment and it's quite effective uh, for our female patients. Now, in terms of FDA approved options, we have two for um, non-hormonal therapies to boost libido. Uh, and this is uh, FDA approved for premenopausal women. So the first drug is called flibanserin and flibanserin works by, um, it's a partial serotonin agonist, partial antagonist, and basically works to uh, inhibit gl glutamate by and basically increasing dopamine. And so uh, it was initially looked at as an antidepressant. And while it wasn't a perfect antidepressant, uh, libido scores went through the roof. And so it's been studied on thousands of women and shows statistically significant improvement in desire and decrease in distress. Flobanserin is a pill you take every night at bedtime. It does make you sleepy, so it's, it's good to take at bedtime. Women often feel well-rested. There's some data that shows that there's some mild weight loss with this medication. And um, uh, if you look at the, about 60% of people respond to it and do well with it. And if you are in that responder data, there's an incredible increase in sexual satisfying events and improvements in desire and decreases in distress. So as I said, the most common side effect is um, uh, uh, sleepiness. Uh, it can also have nausea um, and um, uh, dizziness, but this is much like many of our other antidepressants um, that, that we use pretty regularly. The other FDA-approved medication is bremelanotide, and bremelanotide works on melanocortin-4 receptors, um, and basically by, uh, uh, by activating the melanocortin-4 receptors, it increases dopamine uh, in the brain. Uh, uh, bremelanotide is an auto-injector, so this is more like the on-demand version. So what, whereas flibanserin is an every night medication, takes about two months to know if it works. Bremelanotide is you inject yourself an, about an hour before you want to want. And so you put it in your thigh or in your abdomen and um, uh, it increases, kind of gives you a boost, a hit of dopamine, if you will. And so the biggest side effect we see is... Um, is nausea. And so sometimes we'll prescribe Zofran uh, with this medication. Uh, but actually in the clinical trials, very few people dropped out of the study for the nausea uh, and people really did find benefit with this medication. We know that this drug improves um, uh, both uh, um, uh, arousal and desire and uh, lubrication uh, and all of those things. So um, they both work. They both work. The cool thing is they work against placebo. And anyone who tries to do uh, research on sexual medicine knows just talking about sex, being in a sex trial, or saying the word sex is going to make people have more sex and, and enjoy it more. And so the placebo response is extremely strong um, uh, in patients. And both of these drugs worked significantly compared to placebo. There is a question, um, uh, is flibanserin and bremelanotide effective in men as well? So obviously both would be off-label use. Um, there is a current clinical trial going on um, uh, for flibanserin in men, uh, and uh, I am hopeful. I, they absolutely would both be effective in my mind, um, but we need more clinical data. Um, there's nothing hormonal. There's nothing gendered about these medications. 
education. And it's very exciting to have options because we don't have that many options for libido in men. Most of our options are testosterone derivatives um, or erectile function agents. And so we're very uh, hopeful that these medications can also uh, prove beneficial for our male patients. I will say uh, clinically, I do see it in my male patients um, that it, it is quite helpful, but, but it's, it can get expensive because it's off-label. Uh, great question. So that, that takes us to section three, where we talk about the medical and surgical management of pelvic pain and dyspareunia. So we're going to talk a couple, a couple of different points uh, uh, just to know when you're examining these patients. Um, I believe that GSM or genitourinary syndrome of menopause is the most important thing that urologists see every day and that they don't treat correctly. And so this idea that menopause, you know, the period may stop, uh, but the pain definitely can start. And as I said before, hormones, we must as urologists get comfortable talking about hormones, uh, talking about the body as a hormonal, uh, we get, we're comfortable talking about men with hormones, but for some reason, we're not so comfortable talking about women and hormones. Uh, menopause is not just about hot flashes and night sweats. It has a terrible PR campaign, but menopause very much affects the bladder, um, the, the, the skin, the bones, your hair, your sleep. Um, uh, your brain. Uh, it can affect all of these different organs, and we never uh, really talk about it. But as you lose estrogen in your body, pain with sex goes up and up and up and up. Uh, we know that early in menopause, 42% of uh, women will complain with, of sexual problems. Eight years down the road, you know, 88% will complain of sexual problems. So we uh, unfortunately don't often take these women seriously, don't often talk to, to menopausal women about their sexual problems. Uh, but I assure you, uh, uh, if, we, uh, if they knew we had good treatments available, they would be talking about it a lot more. But they always assume, since the doctors never bring it up or talk about it, that there's not much we can do for them. Again, it all comes down to anatomy. When you understand the anatomy and how it is hormonally sensitive, you then understand what can go wrong if there are no hormones. So if you think of a pediatric patient, uh, a pediatric vulva, you know, there is no labia minora. The introitus is so small. It is red. It is raw. It is irritated. And then a woman goes through puberty. She gets a surge of hormones and the tissue changes, right? The labia get bigger. The tissue opens. There's, you can put tampons in. You can have penetration. Hell, babies can come out of there. And so we must get used to thinking about the vulva as hormonally sensitive tissue. If you give high doses of testosterone uh, as someone who wants to transition, you're going to grow the clitoris so much that some people can arguably penetrate with it. And so uh, you, you can, this is very hormonally sensitive tissue. And then menopause, this thing that happens after 52, where the ovaries stop making hormones. And as the ovaries stop making hormones, you then revert back to that pediatric vulva, right? You no longer have the hormonal support that you once had. And so you develop over time and it gets worse and worse and worse over time, you get what is called genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. And uh, it is not, we used to call it atrophy, uh, vaginal atrophy. It is not nice to tell a woman her vagina is atrophic. She does not like to hear that. Um, but, but you see, what are the changes of GSM? You see dryness, decreased lubrication, pain with sex, decrease arousal, orgasm, and desire, 
But this is where urology comes in. It is not just about sex, okay? It is about irritation, burning, and itching of the vulva and vagina. It is about dysuria, pain with urination. It is about a urinary frequency and urgency, okay? These are urologic problems. You have tons of patients who come into your clinic with urinary frequency and urgency and recurrent urinary tract infections. Why does it get infected? Because you lose the acidity of the vagina, your pH increases, you lose the acidity to be able to fight infection. So this is urologic anatomy, this is urologic problem. And because the vagina, the vulva, the urethra are hormonally sensitive, menopause really does a number on our organs as urologists. And so it's not just symptoms, you also see signs. You can see the decrease in elasticity. The labia minora, they shrivel up and go away. Guys, if a penis shriveled up at age 52, we would have vaccines for prevention, okay? Labia are literally shrinking away and disappearing. You see paleness, you see redness, you lose the wrinkles in the vagina, it becomes fragile. Um, the urethra can prolapse. Uh, uh, it's really um, very apparent when you do a physical exam, but so many urologists don't do a physical exam. You have a patient who comes in for recurrent urinary tract infections and you throw macrobid at them. You throw cranberry pills at them. You tell them to pee after sex, but I will promise you that no peeing after sex on earth is going to fix this problem here. No cranberry pill on earth is gonna fix this problem here. And if you don't look at it, you can't properly educate your patient and explain to them that Mrs. Jones, it is because your tissue looks like this and is no longer healthy that you have pain with sitting, that you have irritation and burning and itching and that you have frequent urinary tract infections. We can easily get your tissue to look back to here. We just have to give you proper hormone, local hormone therapy, which is safe, effective, and is not going to cause any of the cancer, blood clots, stroke, heart attacks that the media makes you think that it will cause. And underneath this raw burning hot fire tissue is the pelvic floor, okay? So if your tissue feels like burning hot fire, the pelvic floor responds by tightening, right? The muscles don't like to be in, in pain. And so think of like putting your hand on a hot stove. You're never gonna put your hand on a hot stove, right? Um, why don't you put your hand on a hot stove? Um, because your, your muscles are gonna pull away. And so if there is hot burning fire at the opening of the vulva, all of the muscles are gonna contract and get tight, tight, tight. Many of your patients with severe GSM are not gonna be sexually active because it's too painful. So they'll come in instead with frequent urination, UTIs, and constipation. Why constipation? Because the muscles are so tight that they can't get them to relax and so it's harder to get stool out, okay? So uh, hold on, there's a question. Someone asked about prescribing Viagra for women. Very good question. And, and if that, um, you, we give Viagra to men all the time. Um, as you uh, treat women, uh, I of course can answer this later, but basically Viagra works the same way in women as it does in men. The clitoris is full of erectile tissue. If you give Viagra, you get increased blood flow to the clitoris. So it improves arousal um, very uh, well. It improves arousal, but most women uh, don't complain of arousal problems. They complain of pain or low libido or a muted orgasm, and it hasn't been shown to help with those things. So if you do have maybe a vascular patient or a diabetic patient who's having problems with engorgement or arousal, fabulous treatment and certainly something you could use off-label. So back to our GSM uh, talk for a moment. Um, this is not 
atrophy. This is not a pain with sex. This is a urologic problem that must be treated by urologists. And in 2019, the American Urologic Association came out with a really nice set of guidelines uh, for people who do have recurrent urinary tract infections. And in those guidelines, they said that um, in postmenopausal, perimenopausal women, they should be given vaginal estrogen therapy to reduce the risk of future urinary tract infections. And so it's a really important recommendation, but it only works if you know how to prescribe vaginal estrogen, and it only works if you know how to educate your patients on the use of vaginal estrogen. And so education is absolutely essential for getting your patients treated and for getting this, this problem to go away uh, for your patients. So GSM treatment will not work if it's, I see this patient in my office every day. Uh, it was her, her gynecologist prescribed it, but it was too expensive for her to pick up. Her urologist prescribed it, but it was too gooey. It was a cream and she didn't like putting the gooey cream in her vagina. Uh, the patient who came in said, yeah, you know, they keep giving me refills. Every time I go to the gynecologist, I complain of pain with sex and they keep giving me this medication, but it just keeps sitting in my bathroom drawer unopened. Uh, the patient doesn't refill it or the patient reads the box warning and says, oh my God, Dr. Rubin is trying to kill me. I will never use any kind of hormone therapy. And so how you combat all of these issues is on you as an educator, as a doctor. It's not a non-compliant patient. It's a bad doctor who doesn't have the time or the expertise or the education to really teach their patients about this problem. As urologists, we have learned how to use a robot. We've learned how to use lasers for kidney stones. You've learned all these new technologies. I promise you, you can learn how to prescribe vaginal estrogen and vaginal hormone therapies for your patients. This is a list, take a screenshot, take a selfie, take a post it on the internet. I have it on my Twitter, just so if you need a reference to it. These are all the treatments that you can use, many of which are available in samples, many of which will have reps that will bring you samples if you're allowed to do that in your practice. Um, the first two are creams. And I tell you, women do not like putting creams in their vagina. It's goopy, it's gloppy, and they don't quite know how the applicator works and how much to use. And that dab of estrogen that you tell them all to use on their urethra, it is not enough estrogen to acidify their vagina and fight infections. So stop, stop telling them just to use a dab because it's not enough. It's not fixing the problem and nor should it make you feel better that you're preventing cancer or some kind of issue because more will not cause those things. So the first two are creams. Those have been around since the seventies. We've got better and more updated treatments, people. There are vaginal inserts. Okay, so you just take a little tablet and you put it in your vagina every day for two weeks or twice a week after that. Um, there's generic products, which cash price on GoodRx is going to be $40 to $50 a month, which is honestly often more inexpensive than um, some of the, the ones that uh, Medicare will cover for insurance. Um, this product in Vexi, uh, there are samples and, and um, uh, they will the reps will come to your office. There's vaginal DHEA, which is called a medication that goes nightly in the vagina that is a, also that we'll sample and bring to your office. An E-string is a ring that goes in the vagina and stays for three months at a time. So if your patients have poor dexterity or dementia, you have them come in your office every three months, you take the ring out, you put the new ring in. Uh, there is one, a pill available called ospemaphine, and it's a pill you take uh, once a day. So there are so many options that, and, and it's not just about creams anymore. 
But what about all the dangers? You have to get comfortable explaining to patients that everything they think is true about the word estrogen, it turns out is actually not true. So when you talk about systemic levels, so data shows that there is no increased risk of systemic absorption of these products. In the first couple hours, Mrs. Jones, your estrogen levels will peak at 25. Right now, if I draw your blood, Mrs. Jones, you're 65 years old, your estrogen is zero zero. Your partner's estrogen, his estrogen, he came with you today is 25. So for a couple hours, when you use this vaginal product, your estrogen will peak at around 25, which is the same as Mr. Jones estrogen. And then it will go right back down to zero, allowing your partner to still have more estrogen in his body than you have in your body. Um, so that's upsetting to most of them. And they want to know why they can't have more estrogen uh, systemically. But then they go home and they read the box warning and it says, oh my God, blood clots, heart attacks, strokes, breast cancer, all of these things. None of it is true. I repeat, none of it is true. We have significant amount of data from those studies that worried everybody that said using vaginal estrogen shows no increase of cancer, cardiovascular problems, blood clots. And uh, uh, basically a, a citizen petition was sent out against the FDA and said, you must take this box warning off this product. It took the FDA two years to respond and they sent a letter that said, yeah, we agree with you on all these points, but we're gonna keep the box warning on because we're the FDA. That study that all of this is based on is from the Women's Health Initiative, which after 18 years, if you read the Women's Health Initiative, women who used systemic synthetic, like a birth control pill type of estrogen, just estrogen alone had a decreased risk of getting and dying from breast cancer. So Mrs. Jones, if I gave you a pill of estrogen that went through your whole body and gave you systemic levels, uh, you would have a decreased risk of getting and dying from breast cancer. So I don't think putting a local, a small amount locally in your vagina is going to give you any risk at all for getting cancer. In fact, I have data to show it has no risk of giving you cancer of any kind. It has no risk of giving you heart disease or blood clots of any, any kind. And before they go and pick up that prescription, you have to have that conversation with them because they're going to go home and see the box and say, Dr. So-and-so has no idea what they're doing and he or she is trying to kill me. And so you have to be able to, you know, uh, look at these problems and, and know that there are going to be problems and find a product that you know and feel comfortable how to use and, and work with. And you have to tell them that it takes two months to work. So if they don't refill the product and they use it for a week and they say it's not helping, well, if you had prepared them and say, Mrs. Jones, it's not going to work for two months, well, then she already understands kind of the timeline there. So education is everything. Don't call your patients non-compliant. It is our problems as providers because we don't take the time to fully explain all of these issues. Finally, I, you know, before we answer any questions that you have, I want to spend a few minutes, uh, and we do this in the curriculum as well, talking about pelvic floor dysfunction and vestibulodynia. So pain in this tissue that we were talking about, this endoderm, this bladder lined uh, tissue at the vulvar opening. We use algorithms to say, what if you have pain in this part of your body? Is it a hormone problem? Is it a nerve problem? Or is it a muscle problem? And the three, you will see many patients, uh, you will diagnose many patients as having interstitial cystitis who actually don't have interstitial cystitis, but have vestibulodynia. And the three main causes that we see of this problem are hormone imbalances, pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, or a neuroproliferation, too many nerve endings. 
So the hormone story is when you take a birth control pill, it lowers the free testosterone in your body. And the vestibule is rich in androgen receptors. And so there is a subset of women who take birth control pills and start having pain with sex, pain with tampons. And it is because they don't have enough androgens uh, in their local tissue. So we have them stop birth control pills. We often recommend hormonal or non-hormonal IUDs. And we have them replace uh, what they're missing, a tiny bit of estrogen, a tiny bit of testosterone, compounded in a gel, and they put it on their vestibule twice a day. You can also use FDA-approved vaginal DHEA. There's some data to show improvement um, um, using just that uh, product alone, and anecdotally, it does work quite well. Um, it takes time uh, to see improvement. I talked to a woman uh, just today who it's been three months, and she's drastically better. She's not all the way better, but she's drastically better uh, in 12 weeks. And I told her that she's right in line with the data, which shows 50% improvement at 12 weeks. She is thrilled. It was her NuvaRing that caused her to have that problem. We got her off the NuvaRing. We started the gel, and uh, she is having. She is so much happier, and she's just amazed at how much of a difference we've made in just three months. Um, um, patients also can present with pelvic uh, floor dysfunction. So if you put your finger in their vagina and you go like a clock and it's tight or they say, ow, uh, then uh, you really want to get your pelvic floor physical therapist on speed dial. A good pelvic floor physical therapist will help your male patients, your female patients. If there's any kind of pelvic pain, testicular pain, uh, prostatitis, uh, interstitial cystitis, get your pelvic floor physical therapist involved. Um, if we sometimes we will provide a uh, suppositories of muscle relaxers or do trigger point injections with steroid or botulinum toxin uh, directly into the pelvic floor muscles. For the more rare patient who has um, a neuroproliferation, if they've had the first time they put a tampon in, uh, there's no hormonal uh, component, there's no pelvic floor component, it is all, a, there, we, we think they have a sort of a mast cell condition where they have too many nerve endings in this endodermal tissue. These patients do very, very well uh, with vulvar vestibulectomies, and uh, there's a YouTube video uh, if you do want to check it out. I do recommend you know what you're doing when you do this surgery, because not that it's a difficult surgery, but you want to make sure that you choose the right patient, that you do it on the right person, and that you know what you're doing uh, as the recovery uh, can be you know, a little bit difficult. So this is what it looks like afterwards. Um, it was a big overview and certainly any one of these topics could be hour long lectures. Um, and if you do want to learn more, um, ISWISH just did a virtual course uh, in November, but it's all still available uh, should you want to learn more. So uh, you can watch each one of these topics in a full lecture by the experts. Uh, I promise you people much smarter than myself. Uh, and and uh, please consider coming to our courses or joining our society uh, and learning more about this because this is absolutely urologic issues, urologic problems, um, and things that are within your ability to treat. So um, uh, thank you so much for all coming today. Um, this is a QR code that I believe you can get your CME credit from. Um, obviously, uh, social media uh, would love uh, to know how you enjoyed this lecture tonight. And uh, with that, if there are any questions at all, I would love to answer them. And uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.